I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful now, our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Touch em All podcast. And it's a 5-1 and one Twins team. Best team in the American League. Sizzling start. Who would have thought yeah. Derek Wetmore? We'd be sitting here already planning a World Series parade route before tax day. Well, it's like I told you all off season. You got to look out for the Twins this year. That they're kind of one of those sleeping giant teams. I, no, you said there's a non-zero chance they'd be a sleeping <laughs> giant team. I, I mean, I hate to pat myself on the back, but really, since late October, I've been I've been foretelling this hot start. Yeah. Yeah, just you've been you've been foretelling that Byron Buxton might have a chance to uh, break out and be one of the best players in baseball, and that may have that. happened defensively. But we'll get into all that. Byron Buxton. We'll get into uh, the Twins' hot start. I actually want to start you off with a Touch 'Em All trivia challenge, the first ever. Oh wow! Touch 'Em All Twins trivia challenge. Are you ready for this? Uh well, I guess I'll I'll know more after you ask the question, <laughs> right? That's how this works. All right, there have been. On 31 different occasions, but I'm seeing it's multiple different players. So, like, 15-ish different players have drawn at least four walks in a single game, like Jason Castro did for the Twins in Twins oh, history. 31? Oh. Okay. So, Sorry. on 31 different occasions, yeah, all right. but, like, one player did it five different times. Joe Maurer. Another player did it, actually, Joe Maurer has never drawn four walks in a game. Wow. That's surprising. Which is shocking, yeah. Okay. Name as many of the other ones okay. as you can in a time that I will specify yeah. <laughs> if it gets too awkward. That's reasonable, yeah. Okay. And Roy Smalley has the record with five in a game. Okay. So there's a bunch of a bunch of other guys who've done it four times. Okay, so I've got two. Um, Jason Castro, Roy Smalley. Yep. Two for two. <laughs> two for two. Okay, then let me just start guessing, like, patient-slash-passive Twins hitters. I bet you Aaron Hicks is on the list. Uh, he is not. Wow. Okay. Aaron Hicks is the first guy you would Well, hear. Aaron Hicks because he wouldn't swing at anything. I mean, he's going to get to a three count, three and two count and, and, and hope that you bounce one. Um, Boy, can you give me like eras? Like are, are there recent era twins, like target field era twins on this list? There, uh, yes, there are There are at least a couple target field era twins on this list. Is Jim Tomey on the list? He is on the list, yep. Is... Boy, other like looks like there's three Target heavy. Field era twins, not counting Jason Castro on the list. Jason Castro, Jim Tomey, um, boy, I'm already coming up. Justin Morno is Justin he on Morneau's the list? on the list. Yeah, um, probably not. He Michael did it in Kedire. 2006 during his absurd run. It was oh, in August, and okay. the Royals were like, "We're just not for intentional you. walks, probably." Yeah. Um, he also drove in three runs in that game too. He walked four times and somehow still drove in three runs. I thought it was funny that over the weekend, so Joe Maurer drove in a run by drawing a bases-loaded walk, and Burt brought that up two different times, making fun of Maurer on the broadcast. It's like, but two other guys walked in a run, too, and they don't get made fun of? Yeah. Actually, the game-winning run was walked in, wasn't it? Yeah, Robbie Grossman. Yeah. All right, I'll, I'm going to end your misery right okay, now. Okay, Robbie Grossman's not on that list. No. No. <laughs> uh, but, but a lot okay. of the guys that you would think, uh, Bernie Allen is on the list from 1962, Bob Allison, Butch Weiniger, mm-hmm. Chad Allen walked four times okay. in the game in 1999. Harmon never did it? 
Harmon did it. I'm okay. going alphabetical oh, here. Okay, I see. Based on first name, baseball reference. Oh, all right. <laughs> Chuck Knobloch did it five different times. Wow. David Ortiz walked four times in the game in 2000 for the Twins. I bet you Paul Molitor did not appear on this he list. He is not on the list, no. Doug Mankiewicz, Denard Spann, Killebrew, Jason Castro, Tommy, Justin Morneau, Kent Herbeck, Kirby Puckett, no. Lou Ford, Marty Cordova, Matt Lawton, Mike Cubbage, Randy Bush, Rod Carew twice, Smalley and Shane Mack walked yeah. four times in a game in 1992. Can't believe I missed Lou Ford. You know, that was the obvious one. Lou Ford's really? torrid stretch in 2004, whatever, whatever year With it was. apologies to Lou Ford and Randy Bush. I'm sorry that your names didn't jump right to the top of my brain. So we bring up the Touch em All Trivia Challenge because at some point we're going to give away. We have, a, we have like a suitcase full of stuff to give away. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we're going to give away, hopefully next week, a Brian Dozier bobblehead. And we're just going to try and figure out the logistics. But if you think it'd be fun to participate as the listener in the Touch Em All Trivia Challenge, if we can use you guys to uh, interact with us, we would love for that to happen. So we will um, we'll keep you posted on that going forward. Next yeah, week. I mean, I kind of view it as a way to reward our regular listeners. Like if you're tuning in every week to the Touch Em All podcast, I mean, and you have been <laughs> like through last year and then the most boring off season of the last 10 years, you know, Hat tip to you, first and foremost, and we'd like to give you Brian Dozier bobblehead. So we're going to figure out a way to do that. That's probably coming in next week's Touch Em All episode. Uh, for this week, the Twins are 5-1, and one, and I'm just going to throw this question out, and we can, we can kick around some, uh, some various answers. To what degree is the hot start sustainable? To what degree is competitive, borderline playoff baseball sustainable based on what you've seen in the first week so far? Well, that's a complicated answer. I don't think the Twins are going to the postseason, which is where I'll start the conversation, so that you can't accuse me later of building up anticipation and steam and then putting a wet blanket over the fire. I'll just start with the wet blanket. A wet more blanket, yes. Yeah, I'll just start with that, saying that like I don't really see this as a postseason team. I don't think they have the starting pitching. I think that some of their offensive contributions have been far above what you should expect over 162 games. And I think that there have been some, like, you know, alarming things that have been swept over because they've won five games and six tries. So not to say that we have to be doomsday and doom and gloom, but there are some things that that I think are big question marks, like Jorge Polanco we thought was going to be a question mark in the field. He still is. Miguel Sano, uh, like the best thing that you could say about him is that he's a question mark. At worst, you could say he's like a period at the end of the sentence that says Miguel Sano can't play third base. That's just defensively, though. That's right, because he's been excellent offensively. I don't think there's any question about how far that ball traveled on, what was it, Sunday's game, uh, that he hit a ball into the wind, like 17-mile-an-hour wind, and in fact, in still f- almost made it to the Dan Ryan, for God's sake. <laughs> in a future Touch Em All episode, we should give away that baseball, but we'll have to track it down first, and I'm not sure it's landed. Um, yeah, I actually, I wrote on 1500ESPN.com on Tuesday morning about, like, it's weird, Miguel Sano and Byron Buxton have polar opposite problems right now. Like, Buxton's been great defensively and made a couple highlight reel catches, and it's just, like, cringeworthy when he stands at the plate. Miguel Sano's sort of been, you know, a force in the middle of the lineup like we thought he would be, and then you hold your breath when the balls hit his way on defense. So it's a, it's a super long way of answering your question. We could go even further down into the weeds if you want, and I could say that like the bullpen's not going to hold all these leads because they just don't have the horses. So 
all of those layers need to be factored into the answer to this question. But do I think the Twins are going to finish the season at at uh, you know five and five and one pace? Okay, well, no. No, yeah, I, I, I don't. I, think I so. agree with that. Okay. Clearly, like they're not All a right. one hundred or <laughs> this isn't 140 a hundred and forty win twins no, team. No, that's, okay. that's the it, episode over. So we agree. Sorry, fans. <laughs> See you next week for yeah. the twins touch them all trivia challenge. I'll answer it this way: You saw on Friday night specifically, if for people who sat down for Game One of the White Sox series, and Phil Hughes was on the mound for this game, you saw on Friday night why the Twins could pretty easily make a huge turnaround from last year. And that could even mean just flirting with 500. That would be a huge 20-game turnaround from yeah. last year. First off, Brian Dozier, Miguel Sano, they're going to score runs. I mean, they were like mid-pack and run scoring last year in weighted on base average. With those two guys, with Max Kepler, with Jorge Polanco, has been able to hit at almost every level. Um, and with their platoon advantages, I know they're using Robbie Grossman in smarter ways with the lineup. Joe Maurer is going to get on base to some degree. They're going to score some runs. They're not going to be a bottom-feeding offense. And then you add in one of the best defensive outfields in the league, which has some caveats to it because we have to get to the Byron Buxton um, hole in his bat. Mysterious. He might just want a new bat manufacturer. I think there's like a gaping hole in there somewhere. Um, But like Phil Hughes was serving up meatballs on Friday. He was not pitching particularly well early in that game. Now, he settled in through strikes, didn't walk anybody, which is good. But it wasn't like he brought 93-mile-an-hour classic Phil Hughes stuff to the table in Chicago. And yet he was lauded for the next 24 hours, and this is not to rip Phil Hughes. I think even he would admit, yeah, I mean, I wasn't like Randy Johnson in his prime you know, lights mm-hmm. out. Byron Buxton saved his bacon twice with sprawling catches on the warning track and center. Mm-hmm. Max Kepler made a ridiculous catch in the corner. But that's what great defensive teams do. They boost up mediocre pitchers. And on the radio, I went over the names of like the 2014-15 Royals yeah. pitchers, for instance. And I think this is more of a statistically inclined crowd on our podcast than on the, on the mainstream radio show. You know, Chris Young, his expected ERA in 2015 was four and a half. Well, he had a three ERA. Mm-hmm. And that's because of Lorenzo Cain and Alex Gordon and Alcides Escobar. Yeah. And if you look at almost every Royals pitcher in 2014-15, the two years they went to the World Series, from James Shields to Wade Davis, who are very good just without great defense, even like Jeremy Guthrie and Jason Vargas, guys who are number five starters, Bruce starting, Chen. <laughs> yeah, starting World Series games. Yeah. And these guys are made oh. to look competent with right. ERAs under four, and it's because of great outfield defense and great defense all around. The Twins offer that now. Mm-hmm. So they can take a mediocre Phil Hughes performance and turn it into five or six in, uh, five or six innings and maybe one earned run with uh, five or six left on base. Yeah, and I don't have this stat in front of me, so correct me if I'm wrong, but last year's Twins as a whole pitching staff, I want to say that their fielding independent marks, uh, their FIP, was like half a run better than their ERA, which to me... Adds up. It might have been more than that. Man. Okay, well, it it's, been, it's it, worth looking up because I will look to it me, up right now. it might have been like a full run. Miguel Sano butchering balls in right field, Ozzy Arcia doing the same in left field, and Danny Santana playing some center. Like you're just going to have more doubles land, and that's just a fact. Uh, they had some problems in the infield too. Miguel Sano was responsible for a lot of that as well. That makes a pitching staff look a little bit worse. You can think of a couple different examples. Like um, here's this this one doesn't fit perfectly, but let's just use it as a corollary. Hector Santiago hits Alex Gordon to start a game against the Royals. Ah, all right, well, rub it off. 
goes to first base. Now you've got man on first, nobody out. You get the next guy to a two-strike count, and you strike him out, and Jason Castro throws out Alex Gordon trying to steal second base. Now you've got a double play, so two outs, nobody on base. Last year, Kurt Suzuki, for example, not to rip on Suzuki, but doesn't get good defensive marks compared with a Jason Castro. He doesn't throw that guy out because Castro, uh, Castro throws out people at about a league average rate over the past three years. Um, I looked this up for a column a couple months ago, and it was Castro's like a 26.5%, whereas Kurt Suzuki's like a 19%, which was literally the bottom of all catchers who've caught at least 2,000 innings over the last three years. You're going from the worst to about league average, and that matters. Because now if you're Hector Santiago and you've got one out and a man on second, that's a totally different ball game than two outs, nobody on. Yeah, you can sure. pitch differently. Not only your approach to that individual batter, but even like the the outcomes are different. A double suddenly doesn't cost you a run. It costs you a base runner. A single doesn't cost you a run. It costs you a man on first, and you've got two outs and another chance to get out of the inning. These things matter. And in one start, you can always kind of point to one thing like that. But imagine then multiplying that over the course of an entire season. Yes. And that's what the Twins are doing with better outfield defense. I mean, oh, by the way, a quick anecdote. Hector Santiago is, is one of our weekly guests on Mackie and Judd. Right. And he was he just got done throwing a bullpen on some Little League field in Chicago. They were they were in Chicago for an extra day until they fly into Detroit. Yeah. And they, so he had to get a side session in. Uh, he, I guess he throws a side session the day before he starts. Sure. And some pitchers are a little bit different. But um, so he found, and I th- I'm assuming he brought like Chris Jimenez. I'm not sure which catcher. Maybe he just brought a bullpen catcher. And they found just somewhere like in downtown Chicago, like a playground. <laughs> okay. And people were kind of gathering to watch, but they weren't really sure who That's he was. Funny. They just thought it was some random guy like throwing pitches. And he's kind of but- <laughs> short. Like you could just mistake him for like yeah. a guy just playing catch. Yeah. But he, he said. I just asked him, tell us, give us a couple anecdotes about the team, five and one start, there must be some positivity, give us some behind-the-scenes anecdotes. And he said, the clubhouse chemistry, take it for what it's worth, is off to a great start, he said. He said, they have like a group, a team group chat, for instance, that they all, I don't know if it's like via text message or if it's like Gchat or whatever, but they're just like communicating more as a team and they're focusing on... The bullpen, for instance, goes out once per series now. Yeah, they go for out dinner. for dinner. Yeah, and I don't know if that's going to help them win another game, but I do think, in general, when you're trying to build from the ground up and you're trying to go from multiple ninety and one hundred lost seasons, start with just having guys all on the same page and communicating better and trying to help each other get mm-hmm. better, reach the 80th percentile instead of the 50th percentile. Sure. I like that type of stuff. Do you have the uh, FIP numbers versus their ERA I do, last yeah. year? So, you, so their ex-FIP was actually 70 points better wow. than their ERA. Yeah. Their FIP was 50 points better, 52 yeah, okay. points better. That's incredible. Well, over the course of a season, I kind of like FIP because it's like, are we trying to judge based on what? happened or like what should have happened or are we trying to judge based on what actually did and as to me anyway as i look back at a season 162 games is enough of a sample for me to say that i trust the fip number as like more of an expected era if you want to call it that uh so anyways that's what i was thinking of is that their outfield defense and probably their infield defense and catching situation and let's not just blame kurt suzuki by the way because i I blame him for everything quite frankly I blame him for the Caps trade. It's like the thanks Obama meme. I, yeah. that's become, thanks Suzuki. <laughs> so I blame him for 1998, the Vikings. Yeah, that was a it was a bad snap by Kurt Suzuki. 
the way that I look at their pitching staff now, uh, oh, and just to finish the Suzuki, the thanks Suzuki anecdote, thanks Suzuki. I think there were some Twins pitchers who were really bad at holding runners on last year, and there was just sort of this, I don't care, we're a losing team, whatever, I just gave up a hit, mm-hmm. fine, steal second, I don't care. And I'm not saying that was their mentality, but that's what it looked like from the press box to me. And, like, if you don't give Suzuki a chance to throw anybody out, of course he's going to throw out runners at a lower rate. Wilson Ramos, Matt Wieters are going to throw out guys at a lower rate in that situation. So... Castro is going to help that area, but I think the pitchers also have to take it upon themselves. But all those things put together, collectively, over the course of a season, let an extra run trickle in. Or they let, you know, once a week, uh, and an, a runner advances an extra 90 feet, like Molitor talks about all the time. Take the extra 90 feet, yeah. cut it off for the opponent. That stuff adds up well, like, over a six-month season. Well, take the Buxton catches, for instance. So what what was Phil Hughes' line? Five or six innings, he gave up a run. Five innings with one earned run, Okay, I think. Five innings, one run, and a few strikeouts, no walks. I think it was five hits. It was like a base runner per inning. If Byron Buxton doesn't catch those two balls on the warning track, crashing into the fence right. and running further, it's it's basically Kiermaier and Byron Buxton, and maybe is it Pilar, yeah, from, Kevin Pilar. From, uh, from Toronto, and then everybody else right. in a totally different league. Yeah. If he doesn't catch those... yeah. We're not talking about Phil Hughes, the fly ball pitcher who got some easy contact outs. We're talking about like four and a third yeah. and probably four or five runs, pitch count elevated. Phil um, doubles to the gap Hughes. Yeah, for sure. On the flip side of ERA versus expected ERA or fielding independent pitching um, is another way to – there's expected ERA. I think that's an actual stat that maybe um, other websites use, but fielding independent pitching for people who are new to sabermetrics. The Cubs – Here's a great example. The Chicago Cubs, best team in baseball last year, World Series winners, best pitching staff by a half run and earned run average. The Cubs' FIP last year was 3.77, so close, to, like getting close to 4. Mm-hmm. And the, I think 4 might be like the league average ERA. That's kind yeah. of the way I think about it. So they're fielding in their – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refer to it as expected ERA just for the ease of listeners. Okay. Their expected ERA based on pitcher performance – was almost 4, 3.77, so mm-hmm. getting close to 4. The Twins' expected ERA was 4.5, so a gap, but like like a half-run, three-quarter run gap. The gap between their actual ERAs was two full runs. Yeah. <laughs> and if you look, if you simplify it, you know, pitchers can control walks and strikeouts and, to some degree, fly ball, ground ball, depending on the style pitcher they're on, and then, and then you know, off of that, home runs allowed, which is how you make up some of these expected ERA numbers. But if you look at batting average on balls in play allowed, that tells you a lot about how many of those batted balls are being converted into outs compared to the rest of the league if you if you compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. The Twins last season, and this isn't just the fault of defenders. Some of it's if you allowed more loud contact, yeah. right? If I give up more line drives than you, well, there's a better chance that those line drives are going to fall in for hits. So it's not 100% defense. But I think you'll see when I throw this number out, the defense plays a factor. Opponents converted batted balls to hits at a 32% rate against Twins pitching. Or vice versa, Twins defenders or fielders uh, were only able to convert 77% of batted balls into outs. It was 250, so 320 versus 250 for the Cubs. And I'm, con- I'm I'm probably confusing people here, but yeah, the I Cubs- think you did your math wrong. There, no, but- the Cubs' batting average on balls in play against mm-hmm. as yeah. a defense and as pitchers was 250. Mm-hmm. 
the Twins' batting average on balls in play against seventy points higher was seventy points That's higher. That's amazing. So some of it, and it's not. And by the way, this year the Twins are leading the league in ERA through the first six games, yep. and also leading the league, I think, in batting average on balls in play against. Not so, sustainable, but interesting. You'd say some of that's luck, some of it's the type of contact you're giving up, but the other part is like Miguel Sano's just not going to be able to dive in the right center field gap and come up with a ball that Max Kepler will be able to. Right. I think Max Kepler's underrated as an outfielder. And, and, you know, that number will change. We'll be doing a podcast in the first week of May, and we might be talking about something totally differently. The pitching staff might revert, or it might look different. Uh, you might have a Jose Barreos up in the big leagues by then or something. So these conversations are all evolving. But in this snapshot in time, that's really interesting to me, The um, that they're giving up so much less to opponents who put the ball in play. But like to your point on if you give up a lot of line drives, yeah, you're going to have a higher BABIP. That's just how it works. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you're Phil Hughes and you get you're relying on getting, you know, 10 fly ball outs a game, it's possible you're going to have some games where you go six or seven innings and limit the damage. It's also possible that you're going to give up three home runs in a start like you did a couple times in spring training, and you're not going to be talking about the great outing. You're going to be talking about taxing your eight-man bullpen in April. Yeah, and so this isn't to say that what's happened so far to explain the 5-1 start that it's going to continue. I just think it's interesting to note, here's what a winning blueprint looks like. I mean, get... Limit the walks and increase the strikeouts as you go along as an organization. But with those batted balls, the balls in play, you got to have an outfield defense that can convert into outs, well, and they are doing that. It's like a hack. I look at it as like a cheat code. It's, it's a shortcut. If you are a loyal listener of the Touch Em All podcast, we would really appreciate if you would leave a positive review if possible, unless you just hate listen every week for the last five months. You know, I mean, if you want to leave a negative review, that's totally cool, but... We could really use your help with positive reviews on iTunes. So go find us on iTunes and leave, uh, if possible, a five-star review with, like, an all-caps, this is amazing, <laughs> with 53 exclamation points. And, and as I always kind of try to tell people, too, share it with your friends. If you like baseball this much and like the Twins, that you'll spend an hour listening to us to blabber on about the Twins you probably have friends who feel the same way, and, and maybe they haven't heard of us yet. So I would say spread the word. Hey, guys, before we continue on with the rest of this Touch em All podcast, it's Phil Mackey here for all of you Twin Cities area listeners to tell you about Luther Brookdale Toyota. 694 and Brooklyn Boulevard is the location. My family and I have been going to this car dealership and service department for three-plus decades And there's a reason for that. It's the best in the business, the smartest and friendliest people in the business. They'll treat you like family. So find out why my family and I have been going to the same dealership and service department for multiple decades right on the corner of 694 and Brooklyn Boulevard, LutherBrookdaleToyota.com. All right, so if you are the Chicago Cubs, look at every position on the diamond and you're like, Yep, we got a great hitter, and we got a great fielder. And it's awesome because they're the same person. So this is cool, right? You're Chris Bryant. Good, you know? Addie Russell, Javi Baez in the middle. This is like a good situation to be in. Ben Zobrist, yeah. Anthony Rizzo. We just keep going and going and going. And the Twins don't really have that. But then again, I would say the early Royals, uh, the Royals teams that eventually ascended to making two straight World Series and winning one of them, 
I don't think the Royals really had that either. It was kind of like, oh, Lorenzo Cain, great glove guy, and you hope he can hit a little bit. I'll see yeah. his Escobar, Hosmer, same deal. same thing, yeah. And what changed about the Royals' dynamic is that then they all became great hitters, and it was like, holy smokes, now we've got a good hitter and fielder at basically every position. We feel pretty good about this, except for Omar Infante. Hey, let's go trade for Ben Zobrist at second base, and now we've got that whole plug. They made their pitching staffs look better, but they also sort of had the complete formula like the Cubs had last year. The Twins, the Twins are not as far along on that spectrum. They have some guys who are good hitters, some guys who are good fielders. In very rare cases, they have both. I'm looking at you, Brian Dozier, Max Kepler, and so far, Jason Castro. Yeah, that'll regress, but yeah. But otherwise, nobody. You don't have anyone that you're like, whoa, two-way force, look out for him. They yeah. don't have that guy, and they don't have him at enough positions. So, like, anyways, what I was saying, the cheat code, if you want to think about it like that, is, okay, well, Byron Buxton's going to strike out in half his plate appearances? That sucks. But let's put him in center field where we maximize his defensive ability. He makes the pitching staff look better, and he's doing it for $500,000 or whatever he's being paid. The next step is you need good hitters plus fielders. The Twins just don't quite have that And yet. that's the thing about Buxton, which is we can get into our our next topic. Oh, I How, can sense the doom and gloom coming already. Well, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not selling all my Buxton stock, but... I'm hedging. For sure. Like he's, <laughs> I think it's pretty safe to say he's never going to be one of those contact... A guy who puts it in play all the time and really takes advantage of his speed. Now, I don't want him... Um, actually, Hector Santiago made the point because he he came up with Mike Trout. Mike Trout was, I think, he was with Mike Trout for oh, the first yeah. three or four years of his career in okay. in uh, Los Angeles. Must be nice. And he said, if you go back to Mike Trout's first or second year, he dropped down not a lot of bunts, but he dropped down some bunts early on. And I look at he, he hasn't dropped a bunt down since his second year, but he dropped six bunts down in his second year, probably earlier in the year. Okay, just to get a little momentum going. Okay, I'm going to use the speed. And I'm not fully confident in my ability to mash all of these pitchers yet because I'm new and I'm 20 years old. Yeah. And while I don't think bunting is the long-term solution for Byron Buxton because he has 25 or 30 home run per year power if he taps into it at some point, he just has to make more contact and start feeling good more often at the plate. Mm -hmm. So if dropping a bunt down once in a while in the short term gets him feeling a little bit better Oof, I'm one for one at least. I got on base. Sure. Like now I can feel a little bit less pressure than when I'm 0 for 3 and down 0 and 2 in the count yeah. and my head spinning. Um, I would be for that. And the problem for the Twins, if you're trying to figure out should you send him back down, well, their entire winning blueprint, short term and long term, revolves around his glove in center field. Like if you take his, if you send Byron Buxton back to AAA, the conversation that's the most difficult won't be sitting him down telling him, hey, it's time to go back, you've been terrible, it'll be saying to Phil Hughes yeah. and Hector Santiago, hey, I know you guys don't have your best stuff early in the year here, but the guy who's been stealing all of those doubles and home runs and triples and turning him into outs, he's going to be gone, and you're not really going to have a center fielder going forward. Like His glove in center field is so important to the yeah. Twins' winning formula this year, next year, five years from now, and so forth. That's what's maddening about it, though, is that if this was just like an average defender who couldn't hit, we wouldn't be talking about him because Aaron he'd Hicks. be in the minor leagues. Yeah, you're like, I don't care. That uh, you know, we're not, you know, we're not pounding the desk because Chris Jimenez isn't going to make the All Star team. We're not like this guy can't hit. It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, he's your backup catcher. Like, what do you expect from him? 
and that's that's the comparison is like expectations versus reality and what's so maddening is Buxton posted great numbers in the minor leagues, great numbers last September, and there was sort of this illusion. Apparently it was an illusion. I didn't think so this winter, but I guess it was. There's this illusion of there's a better hitter in there somewhere, and something about the process of trying to let that person come out, that let Buxton, the minor leaguer, manifest in the big leagues, just isn't working. It's broken, and it's not just like kind of not working. It's been terrible, and I looked up for a column that I was working on. You might appreciate this, Phil. Okay, so one of the – I think there – my central premise is that there are two things that Byron Buxton has to fix right now. They're much easier said than done, and they're plainly obvious, but they're worth saying. Number one, he has to be better at identifying pitches, what the pitcher is trying to do to you. All right, they're 0-2. Jose Quintana goes upstairs with a fastball the other day, and Buxton laid off it, and I thought, oh, maybe he's learning. Pitchers are going to get you to two strikes, and then they're going to try to get you to swing at a ball outside of the strike zone. And I'm giving you that scouting report right now in the second week of April, and it'll be the same in the second week of September. Like, he should never swing on 0-2. In fact, if he just stood up there and laid his bat down on 0-2 pitches <laughs> Set it on and the turned ground. his back to the mound, <laughs> he would still never strike out on the 0-2 pitch. Because there's no reason for a pitcher to ever throw, throw him a strike? pitch in the zone on 0-2. He's getting Why? himself out every right. time. Why would you throw him a strike? So that's step one. Identify what they're trying to do. And step two is just as plainly obvious, when you do swing, you got to make more contact than what you're making. So those are two very obvious things. I'm not like not claiming to be some baseball savant with that. It's just that's what Buxton needs to do, be a better offensive player. Now, through six games, here are the pitches that Buxton has swung and missed on. I, I won't make you guess um, how many pitches he swung and missed at, but I'll just tell you Almost that... Almost all of the pitches. Yeah, most, most of the pitches. Um, and we're going to touch them all on this podcast. He has a uh, 28 or 29% swinging strike rate, which is ungodly bad. Like, Buxton, for his career, has a 15% swing and miss rate. And this year, it's 28%. Small sample size, no doubt. Don't get me wrong, he's going to improve that. But that's how you wind up striking out in more than half your plate appearances through two series. The pitches that Buxton has swung and missed at, eight change-ups, ten breaking balls, so curveballs and sliders, and ten fastballs. Mm. That's incredibly high through six games. But he's not when, you can tell when he's down 0-2. No chance. He's, he's be, he would be better off, honestly, guessing what pitch type is coming on 0-2 and at least just, all right, you know what? I'm all in on a slider right yeah. now. So I think whatever. He's doing a slider. Like if so, if 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 a slider is thrown anywhere near the zone, I'm at least going to hit it because I'm sitting on it. Uh-huh. But you can almost tell, and this is my amateur opinion, when it's 0-2, he's sort of defending against everything in the zone and out of the zone, mm-hmm. all type all types of pitches. But he's not honed enough to do that. Um, you almost have to just start from the. I, I don't know. I, I'm not a hitting coach, so I'm not going to give him advice. But I can tell you this, too. But I'll, I play one on the radio. Yes. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a layer to the numbers you just gave. Yeah. Okay, Let's use Mike Trout as, a, as an example because he's the best hitter. In, he's just the best overall player in baseball. Yeah. On pitches in the zone this year, so when, the, when a pitch is thrown in the zone, Mike Trout and Byron Buxton have about the same contact rate. Okay, It's like 80% Buxton makes contact on pitches in the zone. And for Trout, it's like 85. So it's like pretty comparable. On pitches outside the strike zone, Mike Trout still makes contact 80% of the time. 
and that's a little higher than his career. His career is like 67 or 70 percent. So, which is it's amazing. It shows me that a he's a good bad ball hitter because he's Mike bleeping Trout, and Kirby Puckett was a great bad ball hitter too. But it also tells me that he might have a certain area that he's looking for a pitch in. All right, it's two and one, and I'm looking right here, yeah. middle if he in. Comes middle, even third if it's like in. a little bit low out of the strike zone, yeah. I I'm I'm keyed in on this area enough to where I'm going to blast that pitch and sure. hit it somewhere. So eighty. 80-ish percent on pitches outside the zone he makes contact on. Byron Buxton this year, 17% yeah. outside the strike zone contact rate. Take that another step further. I assume you're on their fan graphs pages. So tell me too, Phil, what's the chase rate for Mike Trout and Byron Buxton? Because that's one of the big things that for young, undisciplined Twins hitters, and not all of them are, but some of them are. Eddie Rosario is a pretty undisciplined hitter. So is Kenny's Vargas. So you're looking for the percentage of time they swing on pitches out of the How zone. How many right? times does Mike Trout swing? And Keep in mind, this is only six games, so it's not like this is their final season rate, but I'm willing to bet that Mike Trout and Byron Buxton are not even in the same galaxy when it comes no. to offering at pitches that don't go inside the strike zone. So Mike Trout offers, or let's just say swings, because yeah. you could even, I'm going to give you Buxton's percentage, and then if you also layered on top the check swings on pitches out of the zone where he yeah. gets lucky and the ump doesn't call it, yeah. I mean, that's another thing. He's flinching at stuff that's nowhere near the zone because yeah. he's so antsy. Uh, Mike Trout only swings at pitches out of the zone about 20% of the time. Okay. So one in every five pitches out of the zone, Trout says, all right, I'll give it a whirl, whatever. I'm going to hit some home runs on some of these, so it's worth the risk. Yeah, Buxton, half. <laughs> 50, not quite 50, 46%. 46% swinging at pitches thrown out of the outside zone. the strike zone. So if you're a pitcher and you get to 0-2 on Byron Buxton, Bouncing. And you've got three or four. You got three. Uh, well, four left to waste, right? Yeah. He's going to swing at half of them. Yeah. You could roll it up there, and yeah. he's going to swing and miss at it. At least based on what we've seen the first six. That's games. why I brought up the Quintana anecdote because I thought it was interesting. I was like, okay, there's an ace lefty on the mound, and you're in a two strike count, and he threw a fastball at your eyes. Based on your first five games, I expect you to swing at that pitch, and Buxton didn't. And I thought to myself, I, I in fact, I was watching the game with my brother, and I said. Interesting. He didn't offer there. Maybe, like, I mean, we're talking about the silver linings of the darkest black clouds, but silver lining, maybe? I mean, possibly turning a corner, and then the next pitch, strike three, swinging through it. So, sorry, I was wrong, but the fact that you even look for a silver lining like that when the silver lining was just that he took a pitch way outside the strike zone with two strikes— that tells you everything you need to know about his offense so far this season. And one thing I want to throw out there to our stats heady audience is that I'm not panicking because there are six games of a putrid sample. Anybody can get in a slump for six. Joe Maurer's not hitting well right Chris, now. Chris Bryant was terrible the yeah. first few games. I don't know if he bounced back yet or not. I haven't seen the last couple and, Cubs and, games. And things happen. And if somebody went in a slump for six games in July, you'd be like, huh, all right, well, break out of it today. That's baseball. We tend to overanalyze things at the beginning of the season. So keep in mind, I have that perspective for sure. I'm not saying, whoa, Byron Buxton has struck out in, what is it, 16 of 24 plate appearances? I'm not saying he's hitting 077, sound the alarms. I'm saying he can't make contact with secondary pitches and is striking out half the time, sound the alarms. Correct, yes. I think it's not about the result that's happened for Buxton in six games. It's about his process, and that's got to 
call me alarmist, but I think there are serious red flags about what's going on for Byron Buxton right now. And so, too, apparently does Paul Molitor because he bumped him down to 7th on Saturday and 8th on Sunday. That tells you all you need to know about where the manager yeah. thinks his center fielder here's, is right now. Here's one more nugget because it is fun digging into some of this stuff, and you and I are 100% on the same page. We've both been championing Byron Buxton throughout the last couple of years and patience, and I'm still championing Byron Buxton and patience for the most part. Sure. Um, he is swinging in general. Just all all pitches added up that he's faced so far this year. He's swinging at about two out of every three pitches he, he faces okay. or sees. Mike Trout, again, the best hitter in baseball and maybe not the best comparison, but and also a guy who has like a 450 on base percentage last year. So yeah, maybe like not the, the guy's best pretty comparison. patient, too. <laughs> yeah. um, so Buxton swinging at two out of every three pitches. Mike Trout, for his career, swings at about one out of every three pitches, Okay, which is a huge difference. I mean, that's the difference between, all right, here's a pitch off the plate on – uh, on the first pitch I see, and I swing and I miss because like I shouldn't have been in the first place, and now I'm behind in the count. Yeah, Behind and ahead in the count. And then you'll see Buxton oftentimes, he'll get that count. He'll get that 2-0 and count, or he'll get that 2-1 and count, whatever, 1-0. and He'll get ahead in the count. And that fastball will come right on the inner half of the plate, and he'll, and he'll watch it go by. Yeah. Like, what? Do you have a plan? Yeah. Are you up there? I Okay, until there's two strikes, I'm looking fastball and inner third of the plate. And if you get that, so if he doesn't swing at that pitch, it tells me, if he has a plan, that his plan wasn't fastball inner third of the plate. Well, then what? Wh- what is your plan? Like, yeah. is it breaking ball inner third? Like, I, or I'd off lo- speed away? Like, yeah. Are you just hoping to maybe lace it to right I'd love field? to hear his logic on what's happened these first six games. Because you're right, it's not just he's hit a bunch of ground balls and he's rolling over the ball. Like, Brian Dozier's had that happen a few sure. times where he's just rolling over everything. Well, that can be fixed. You're making contact. It's just about making better contact. This seems like a problem that I think the reason why we're sounding the alarm is because it feels less fixable. Are you If you can't no. identify pitches and if you don't have a plan or if it's just moving too fast after this many plate appearances, then your ceiling is drastically reduced as an offensive player. The good news is that that promise is still in there, which is what makes him worth talking about on a podcast for this long. Like I said, if, you know... Let's take um, Drew Stubbs. If Drew Stubbs doesn't have a great spring training, it's a footnote, maybe. But this is a guy around whom the Twins are really pinning a lot of hopes. Like, if Miguel Sano and Byron Buxton are who scouts thought they were, thank you, uh, late great Dennis Dennis (laughs) Green. uh, This is a fun and exciting team. But if Sano's a Butcher in the field who's a DH and will mash 40 home runs, and Buxton is a fourth outfielder because he can't make contact, like, that's a huge, huge impediment for the Twins' sort of rebuilding project. So I, that's what makes Buxton maddening. It's that, that there's this thing is still in there, this, this beast that emerged in September and all throughout his minor league career was just tearing it up despite missing basically a full year of development. That's got to be in there somewhere, right? But so far, we have seen nothing surface, not even close to that level. So that's, I mean, am I panicking after six games? Like, no, I wouldn't say I panic. That's just not in my personality. But, woof, it's been a disastrous start to the season for Buxton. And you're right. 
I'm not sure that there's an easy fix because there are like a couple of things that he's going to have yeah. to do better. Let me, let me drop a nugget and maybe we got to get out of here at some point. Um, I mean, in theory, we could do this for like three more hours if we want. Cause... How's the battery on the podcast equipment? I'm starting to worry about it. Um, you know what? It's okay right now. We've gone uh, almost 40 minutes, and I want to bring up – I want 40 minutes, and I want to bring up Tyler Duffy at some point too. <laughs> okay. So like I'm, I could go all day. Okay, so this the... might be the only relevant week of Twins baseball we get. Let's, so let's dive just, in. Let's go let's, – let's just do a marathon. To borrow <laughs> a Phil Mackey phrase, I'm all in on this podcast right now. Well, okay, fine. Then I'll, then I'll drop this um, thought that I had while you were talking about – um, Buxton being fixable or not. So there are two things that jump to my mind, and one involves Paul Molitor and the other involves Joe Posnanski. Wow. It's, it's, I'm, this is a lot, a lot of my favorite people here. That's right. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm eclectic in my baseball taste. So Paul Molitor talks a lot about counts. And Paul Molitor, you've talked with him, Phil. It became a cliche in his first you know, season at the helm of the Twins. Everyone talking about I hated the phrase by the end of the first year. I hated the phrase baseball IQ. That's so stupid to me. Like baseball IQ, what do you mean? You're just prepared for a lot of different situations and you're smart at like reacting to them? That that's dumb. We don't need a phrase for that. That's a thing. That's a skill. And Paul Molitor has that skill uh, you know, to the nth degree. There just aren't people that have that insight. I covered Buck Showalter for a summer in Baltimore, and he's that same way, where, like, you could be talking baseball with him, and you think you're keeping up, and then he drops something that's just, like, outside of the sphere of your consciousness, and you're like, whoa, hold on, I didn't, I didn't really think about that, but that's a good point. I should have thought about that. And, like, you can think you're a smart baseball person, and that's fine, but then you talk to these people, and they humble you. Paul Mahler is that way. He talks about counts. He talks about having a plan, and if you're Miguel Sano, you're going up there. Molitor um, borrowed an old Reggie Jackson phrase in this first week, the first homestand of the season. So he was asked, "Do you think um, do you think hitters are guessing more often today than they did in your day?" And Molitor said, "Like, yeah, probably. I mean, the short answer is yes. I think they are. But what did Reggie Jackson say? I'm not guessing. That's called calculated anticipation." <laughs> And I love that phrase because that's exactly what Molitor talks about. Man, now I'm a little too young to have experienced the Paul Molitor playing days, but I feel like that's exactly who he was as a hitter. That's a big reason why he racked up 3,300 hits in the well, big leagues. It's, it is now. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up an example that it's an amazing nugget, but it didn't matter for hitters anyways. So Clayton Kershaw last year, you know that he never threw a breaking ball when when behind in the count. Okay. Clayton okay. Kershaw threw however wow. many thousands of pitches last year, and at no point did he throw a breaking ball 1-0, 3-1. He just threw fastballs because he's Clayton Kershaw and has That's movement amazing. on his fastball yeah. and gets ground balls on his fastball. Well, hitters probably knew this. I'm assuming at some point with, all the, with all the scouting that goes on, like, yeah, by the time July rolls around, doesn't some advanced scout or some nerd in a front office say, Hey, <laughs> yeah. like when it's two and one or one and zero, oh, he's only throwing fastballs. Mm-hmm. So you should sit on it, and it and it, and it wound up not mattering. But sure. to, to just to get back to your point yeah, yeah. about counts and Paul Molitor's point, knowing what the what knowing um, what tendencies pitchers might lean on in different counts is super helpful, right? I mean, it does help you guess better. Or it might help you sit on an area or a pitch in some form, which is my whole beef with Buxton. Like, he doesn't have sure. any concept of this right now. So, I guess just to interject on that one step further is that if you're a hitter and you know that 100% of the time Clayton Kershaw, when behind 
or even in the count, throws a fastball, isn't there still that little seed of doubt that's like, dude, what if he goes 12-6 on me right here, and well, I'm the idiot that swung three feet over the top of his first curveball well, behind what, in the but count? Like, what does it say about how ridiculous his fastball exactly. is? Exactly. <laughs> no and one can hit it. Pinpoint control. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll layer a tangent on top of a tangent here. Corey Kosky, I was at uh, an analytics conference this offseason here in in Minneapolis, and Corey Kosky was speaking, and he talked about Paul Molitor's just, like, unique wisdom. And I guess Molly was doing some, like, advanced scouting for the Twins or something at the time when they were playing the Oakland Athletics in the ALDS, mm-hmm. and Kosky was on that team. And I think, boy, if I butcher the details of this story, Kosky, a longtime listener of the Touch em All podcast, is going to call me out on it, I'm sure. But he said that Molitor told him that as long as, as Molitor had been watching Hudson, he'd get to a spot in an inning and start guys out. Maybe it was with two outs he'd get there and then start the hitter off with a changeup. Or he, maybe it's like he got a runner on base and he'd go to the changeup on the first pitch just to get ahead in the count. And now, oh, I'm really in the driver's seat because I haven't even shown you my fastball or that two-seam sink, and I've already got a strike on you. Like, tough uphill battle for the hitter. Well, he told this to Koski, and Koski's like, okay, it's the postseason. I'm going to trust you, man. It was like 97% he goes change up in these certain spots. Mm-hmm. Koski's like, 97%? Okay, that's pretty good. I'll I'll take my odds. I, I like my chances there. So he sits, change up, hits a home run, twins win the game, it changes the series. And that's stuck with Corey all wow. these years later that Molitor was able to pick that out. And... You could just see, now back to my Molitor point, you could just see Molitor being that type of hitter, right? I think it was funny when he used the phrase calculated anticipation instead of guessing. But ultimately, that's semantics. You're guessing. If you are Molitor and you know, like, okay, a guy gets to a 3-1 count, so he thinks I'm going to be sitting here to make him throw a strike, he goes to his fastball 95% of the time. If you know that nugget, you know that piece of information— you're banking on that. Okay, 19 out of 20 times, I'm going to get a fastball. So I'm sitting dead red. Even though it's only 3-1, it's a unique spot for a hitter to be because now you're in control of the at-bat. Buxton, you can't even get to this step of the conversation with him because once you get to that 3-1, you could tell him a fastball's coming and he's going to swing through it. So it's like they're building blocks to even get to that point. But and I- Molitor was so uniquely gifted that... You could tell him that was coming, and then he has the hand-eye coordination to go make it happen. But here's where here's where I I disagree with part of what you just said. That, okay. that do you want to fight, bro? <laughs> do you even keep track of the count, bro? <laughs> he it's it's certainly not a talent deficiency or an athletic ability deficiency that causes him to swing and miss at fastballs that aren't being. It's not like Araldus Chapman has been throwing him the only fastballs he's been facing this yeah. year. He's swinging through. 90, pretty standard 90 to 92 mile an hour fastballs this season that other hitters are at least making. It's, they're not firing these baseballs out yeah. of a cannon. You right. know? So he's, it's not that he hasn't seen these and made contact before. So if you're getting blown away by like 91, 92 mile an hour fastballs, that tells me you're not fully committed to that pitch. Sure. So he's caught, whatever it is in his preparation, he's caught between like three different pitches that could come. And That's four different locations that could come. And I would almost just simplify it if you're him or, uh, or a hitting coach. Like, let's go back to the basics. What are you looking for when you first get to the plate until there's two strikes? Well, That's approach one. 
Approach two is, what are you doing now that there are two strikes? Sure. And I, I feel like he's just lost complete command of that mindset in those... I mean, it's, that's way oversimplifying it. But. That's what we saw in September, though, is he mm-hmm. did have that. It was, okay, I'll find something I can do damage, and then I'm going to try to do damage. Yes. And sometimes I'll swing and miss because that's baseball. Miguel Sano swings and misses a lot, mm-hmm. but not, you know, 50% of the time. I'm not going to strike out all the time. And Sano's an interesting comparison because Molitor talks about that. Like, I watch Sano, and I look, and I see him take a plate appearance, and I think, plan. He's got a plan. First pitch, I'm looking for a fastball. If I can't get that fastball, that's fine. I might still offer at a pitch in another spot, but at an 0-0 count, and Joe Maurer's like, you can make fun of him for this if you want to, but he is kind of the master of, like, unless I get the exact pitch that I was looking for, forget about me swinging on the first pitch. I don't care if I get one strike against me. I will only swing at this stage of the count when it's the exact pitch I was looking for. And Sano does that. Now, even with two strikes, Sano does that a lot. He's like, okay, well, I think he's going to a breaking ball here, so I'm going to sit back. And if they blow a fastball by you upstairs, then you just have to live with that every once in a while. Sano doesn't really have a two-strike approach. His two-strike approach is hit at 500 feet. Well, what I really love about Sano in the early going, and, and Roy Smalley was on our radio show last week, and we were talking about this, and he's you want to talk about like high-level, yeah. high-IQ baseball right. lines. Yes. I mean, he's on a different planet, too, when talking right. about hitting. And like Roy, Roy, if Roy didn't have a really good gig during the day and probably making pretty good money with Fox Sports North, I could see him as a great hitting coach sure. for somebody. Um, Roy, we got talking about the difference between where Miguel Sano is now and where Miguel Cabrera is or even was a few years into his career. And two-strike approach is one thing. Maybe just backing off, hitting a ball 450 feet. Like, yeah. That's that. Okay, you had your chance. Now there's two strikes. Now you have to change your approach. What about hitting line drives to right field and just moving the chains and driving runs in at that point? And he's done that a couple times yeah. now. Yes. He's gone off the wall to right field. He's had laser line drive to right field. So if Sano can scale back on the strikeouts and increase his ability to go opposite field when he's behind in the count and just keep the chains moving... All of a sudden now, batting average starts to rise. Mm-hmm. You know, Miguel Cabrera has never been a big strikeout guy, even going back to when he was 20 or 21 years old. Yeah. But if you want to go from being a 240, 250 hitter who's on the verge of breaking the major league strikeout record to being potential MVP candidate, that's how it's done. Yeah. You're not going to hit an extra 10 moonshot home runs. It's about filling in some of those strikeouts with hits Elvis. to opposite field yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So, and... Sano mentioned Cabrera by name this offseason when I talked to him about, like, approach at the plate. What do you want to be different? He said, I want same power, but strike out less often. Like, okay, well, that's, yeah. good luck to you. You know, Roy, I think Roy... Uh, Go be Miguel Cabrera, I guess. Right. Roy, I think Roy said this on our show last week. He was he having similar conversations with Miguel yeah. spring training this offseason. And he said, Go find every tape you can of Miguel Cabrera, especially with two strikes. Sure. And watch it. Watch for the details. Watch for the approach. Mm-hmm. Just look how he lines up. Look where. Look how deep he lets pitches get in sometimes. And he still hits home runs to opposite field because sure. he has ridiculous power, for just sure. like Miguel Sano. So I view Sano as like leagues above Buxton. Yeah, I don't think you can start to have that conversation with Buxton because the conversation needs to start with, well, you just need to make more contact. Just flat out. Your hands need to move the bat into a spot where it connects with the ball more regularly. Once you've got that, 
now we can start building the foundation of a house that will one one day become your hitting approach. And it's just it's six games, so trust me, I get it. Small sample size, but uh, it's in a it's an alarming foundation. Earlier, Phil, I had teased two things that your Buxton thoughts sprung, and one was Molitor talking about counts all the time and calculated anticipation and how, like, Buxton could really benefit if he were better at that, but he wouldn't fully capitalize unless he's making that more contact. So they, they have to go hand in hand. That was one thought. The second thought was this Joe Posnanski thing that I would direct. If you're still listening to this podcast, you will love this piece because it's an intuitive thing. Like, you think about this when you're watching or playing or coaching baseball in Little League. But to have somebody put it in writing so well as only, maybe not only, but as Joe Posnanski is uniquely capable of doing, it's it's a fascinating read. So if you're still listening to this podcast, go find it. It's like Joe Posnanski and Counts Baseball. Google that phrase and try to come up with it because I can't remember what the headline is. But he talks about this intuitive thing that we all sort of know but never really call out very often. Molitor talks about it all the time. He's like, the only reason that you have counts is so that you can develop tendencies and learn what the other person is trying to do. It's like a chess match. Well, Buxton's not quite to the point where he's playing chess just yet, but the point of this Posnanski piece is like, would you, if I told you that the difference between the same hitter, if Miguel Sano's in a 2 and one count and a 1-2 and two count, just one pitch difference, no big deal. I mean, fastball on the corner that happened to get called for a strike or like a foul ball when it, when he's in the middle of a count, that doesn't seem like too big of a difference. Like, it's the same guy, and then you live to see another pitch. You're right there. You're in it. You're in a battle with the pitcher. It's amazing how staggering the difference is in individual batting lines when you get into a disadvantageous account. Oh, yeah. it's yeah. If you are Miguel Sano and you're one and two, it's not hopeless, but it's pretty close to hopeless. Like, the pitcher is in control of things versus if you're in a two and one count, it sounds so crazy, right? It's just one pitch, but it's staggering how big the difference is, and that's the big problem for Buxton right now, that even if he starts making more contact, boy, offering at some of these pitches outside the strike zone is still going to be an issue. That's why I am kind of feel okay hammering the alarm button right now because there are several things that he's going to have to correct all at once. Molitor talks about this thing, quote, flipping counts. And I love that phrase because if you're Max Kepler and you walk up there and you get a 1-1 pitch and it bounces in the dirt but you swung at it, it should be 2-1. You should be in the driver's seat, and instead you're running for your life playing defense trying to make sure that the pitcher can't take you and take advantage of you the rest of the count. Well, yeah, let's bring Mike Trout back into the equation here. If he's the best I, player in baseball. I heard, yeah, I heard he's pretty good at this game. Yeah. Let, let's bring him back in here. So, yes, it's amazing when you go just count to a different count, to a different count, the difference in the likelihood of a certain outcome, whether it's, uh, you know, 2 and 0 a hitter has a, I think being ahead in the count for a hitter has two advantages. Number 1, the pitcher feels more obligated to throw a pitch in the zone yep. so that he has a better chance of it being a strike. Um and then of course a hitter knows that, so he knows that there's a better percentage. He's maybe A still looking for a certain type of pitch and B gets that pitch in the zone more often because the pitcher is trying to come back from down 2 and 1 or yeah. 2 and 0. Well, Mike Trout I'm just going to go through different counts here. On 1-0 counts. So 1-0, like... Yeah. 
It seems like nothing. Nothing has happened yet. It's been one pitch thrown. <laughs> yeah, right. He's a 409 career hitter on on one and zero with an 861 career slugging percentage, 24 home runs in 214 career plate appearances on one and zero. That's pretty good. How about zero and one? On the flip side, this is amazing to me. Um, actually, he's still a 379 hitter. So that example, <laughs> he's still Mike Trout. You mean? Let's go to one and two. Yeah. Mike Trout on one and two. Yeah. So okay, you're behind. It's not over, but there's two strikes. 200 career hitter. Wow. With a 333 career slugging percentage. Yeah. Uh, when the count is two and two, so even, but but two strikes. It's not really even because there's two strikes. Like it's yeah. yeah. It's, it's even in terms in of the number, but the pitcher's in control. Yeah. He's a 242 career hitter with a 415 career yeah. slugging percentage. Get two strikes on Mike Trout and he becomes human. And that's what you hear pitchers talk about it and you dismiss it because you're like, ugh. Every pitcher says this. What a stupid cliche. It can't have any merit. When pitchers say, yeah, my goal is to get strike one, and then I view myself as in control. Because you are. They are in control. If you get that first pitch strike, which is a stat that the Twins keep track of, how many first pitch strikes did the guy have in his outing? It matters. And not because it shows, oh, Jose Barrios, he can't get the first pitch strike. So, like, well, that's not a good sign for his command because he's not throwing strikes. It's a bad sign for that reason, but compound that problem. Now you're no longer in the driver's seat. You've just forfeited control to the hitter, and as they're in control, 1-0, 2-0, 3-1, well, they can start to eliminate some of your crappy secondary pitches, and now they're sitting on either fastball or your best secondary pitch. They might just pick one. If it's 3-1 and one and you're Miguel Sano and you're facing Miguel Gonzalez, who, no offense, but doesn't scare the living daylights out of Major League. I covered Miguel Gonzalez in Baltimore, and honestly, I, this is such a media guy thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Furthermore, it's a media guy Minnesotan thing to say. Miguel Gonzalez was probably the nicest guy in that clubhouse, like super nice to me when I was an intern for no reason. And yet, I watch him pitch, and I think, man, the Twins probably should have scored like nine runs on Gonzalez on Saturday. You're Miguel Sano. You're not exactly struck with the fear of God in a 3-1 count against Miguel Gonzalez. You can kind of pick which pitch you want to tee off on. And if you don't get it, take it, fine. Worst case scenario, it's 3-2. and two, But the other outcome is that he might walk you. Uh, when you're 0-2, like Byron Buxton seems to find himself these days with regularity— Man, it's a huge uphill climb, even for some of the best hitters in baseball, like you just mentioned. Mike Trout is a mere mortal when he's 0-2. Yeah, Mike Trout, with two strikes for his career, is a two twenty six hitter. That's the best hitter in baseball, with yeah. two strikes, is a two twenty six hitter. What's going to happen when you're just trying to carve your own path in the big right. leagues for the first time? Like, it's it's Good amazing. Luck, I don't know if we solved any of Byron Buxton's problems, but we certainly pointed out all of them on this episode. <laughs> we brought a ton of problems with no solutions to the table. Hey, we never said, in our podcast description, we never said problem solvers, but I think we should add the line, problem definers. <laughs> yes. Call it Duty Modern Warfare is here, and so is Mountain Dew. Roger that. Now you can unlock in-game rewards like only Dew can. Wait. What rewards? A dual operator skin. Man, I love operator skins. Dual double XP, and even Call of Duty points. You're kidding me. Double XP and Call of Duty points? This is incredible. I can't believe it. Soldier, get a hold of yourself. Oh, roger that. Look for specially marked packaging and visit mtndugaming.com for details and restrictions. Open to U.S. residents 17 plus. Call of Duty points available on 12 and 24 packs and free 20 and 23.